but the International Marketers University has only just begun. And we're very excited to introduce you to this session on Marxist economics entitled The Labour Theory of Value, The Origins of Marxist Economics. The Labour Theory of Value and Marxist economics in general are one of the cornerstones of Marxism. And with the world gripped by an unprecedented world crisis of the capitalist system, it's all the more important to master Marxist economics so that we can understand where this crisis comes from. That we can provide an analysis and build a leadership capable of steering away from the exploitation and chaos of capitalism towards socialism. And I'm delighted to introduce our speaker who will provide the uh, introductory remarks for this session. He's the co-author of Understanding Marx's Capital, a reader's guide, which is available to purchase from well-read books and is a really invaluable starting point for anybody trying to conquer the Marxist classic capital. Now, you might have noticed that I'm pausing between sentences. And if you just joined us, that's because I'm listening to translation because this session, along with all the others for the IMU, is being broadcast to people all over the world with different languages listening in. Well, you've heard quite enough from me. So I'm now going to introduce Rob. And Rob, take it away. Well, comrades, this capitalist crisis is affecting the lives of of people everywhere. And therefore, an understanding of what is going on, an understanding of Marxist economics, has become more relevant than ever. And central to this understanding of Marxist economics is the labour theory of value. Now, of course, Marx didn't suck this idea out of his thumb, so to speak. In fact, the uh, ruler of, of the foundations of Marxism was based on the most advanced ideas of the time. And this also applies clearly to economics. And the most advanced ideas at that moment were the ideas of the bourgeois classical economists. And they were represented above all by individuals like Adam Smith, and David Ricardo. And these were, although bourgeois economists, were extremely serious economists who delved into the workings of capitalism. And it must be said that they, are, they stand up as, as giants compared to the so-called economists of today. Today's professors and uh, professional economists are nothing more than apologists for capitalism. While the school of, of, of bourgeois classical economy made enormous uh, advances in understanding the laws of capitalism. And Marx uh, not only admired them, but uh, paid tribute to the work that they had done, the pioneering work that they had accomplished. But Marx was able to not only understand them, but to deepen and develop these ideas and draw the necessary conclusions from them. I mean, the main problem, one of the key problems of these classical economists 
is that they viewed capitalism as the pinnacle of society rather than understand that it was simply a transitory stage in the development of human history. And as a consequence, Marx carried out a thorough critique of this school of thought and demonstrated that the contradictions, the internal contradictions of capitalism were precisely the seeds them, themselves that were preparing a downfall of the system. Lenin often remarked that the great genius of Marx is that he saw the relationships, not as a relationship between things, but a relationship between people. And ultimately, this is a relationship between classes. In other words, he was able to see uh, behind the appearances of capitalism and was able to discover the real relationships behind this veil, behind this mask. Now, the classical economists grappled with this 2,000-year-old problem, the question of value. What is value? How much is something worth? And how do we determine the value? And it was the investigations of this bourgeois classical economist who discovered the, this theory, this labor theory of value. And this became the bedrock of their ideas and also became the bedrock of Marxist understanding of capitalism. Of course, with the, uh, the, the development of capitalism, the class struggle, the ruling class realized that such a theory where the working class would produce the value of society was an extremely dangerous theory as far as they were concerned. And therefore, they abandoned that idea completely and embrace the idea, subjective ideas about, the, about econ economics. And their, their theories were there to, to justify the capitalist system, not to explore it. Nevertheless, the labor theory of value is, is actually the uh, answer to this riddle. Under capitalism, the characteristic is that there are trillions of commodities exchanged on the world market every day. And yet, there is no plan, there's no preconceived idea. In fact, the whole system is anarchic. But nevertheless, the system not only survives, but advances. And the reason for this, it is regulated by this law of value. Now, to understand this a bit more, we need to deal with the nature of the commodity. As Marx explained, that the commodity is the cell of capitalism. And the, the prime uh, characteristic of the commodity is that it is a product for sale. And one of its essential features for it to be sold is it has to be useful. Otherwise, uh, no one would run to buy it. 
You know, if I was to make a pair of trousers, which had three legs, there wouldn't be much a demand for this because there's not many people with three legs. So it'd be a completely wasted uh, opportunity, wasted labor. Or if you made a bicycle with square wheels, it would be completely useless. So the, the fact that a commodity must be useful is essential. And in fact, it was Adam Smith who gave the name uh, that a commodity has a use value, there's a utility. And of course, uh, the use value of a chair is to sit on it. Uh, the value of a coat is to wear it to keep warm. And the use value of uh, drinking a pint of beer is to quench your thirst and feel happy. But uh, under capitalism, the driving force for production is not whether things are useful. The driving force of capitalism is to make money. So the capitalists don't care what they produce. They're not interested in that as long as it produces money. So they could, they could produce T-shirts with I love Boris Johnson on it. Or they could produce weapons of mass destruction. Doesn't make any difference as long as they can make profit at the end of the day. What interests them is exchange value. How much money they're going to get from producing something. So a commodity has these two features. It has a use value. And also it has an exchange value. Now, exchange arises at a certain point in historical development. It emerges when there's a division of labor in society. Of course, if there's no division of labor, then there's no need to exchange something. Everything's it's got the same things. But as soon as you've got a division of labor, then things have to be changed one for another. And this is where the law of value begins to operate. Of course, in a, in a system of barter, you can have um, a baker, for instance, who has bread, who's looking for a pair of shoes. But they have to find a, a shoemaker who's interested in some bread before an exchange can take place. Um, so obviously, given that inconvenience, a new factor arises called money, which, is it, which allows exchange to take place more freely. This money becomes the universal equivalent, basically. It allows exchange to take place. The baker will sell his bread and get some money and then use the money to buy shoes if he needs shoes. But we have to get behind this. How, uh, how much bread, that's the point, is needed to exchange for a pair of shoes, even if you use, if you use money? Or how many coats 
Can you change exchange for so many bottles of aftershave or whatever you like? And it was the classical bourgeois economist who realized that there's only one common property to commodities. But this cannot be the utility. It can't be the usefulness of something. Because what is useful for one person is not very useful for another. And you've got things which are necessities, which are extremely useful, but do not attract, do not attract much of a price. Because um, if, if it was based on utility, a loaf of bread would be more, more, more valuable than a car. It was Adam Smith who explained, water and air are abundantly useful. They are indeed indispensable to existence. Yet under ordinary circumstances, nothing can be obtained in exchange for them. Gold, he says, on the other hand, though of little, little use compared to air, air and water, will exchange for a great quantity of other goods. He therefore concludes, utility then is not the measure of exchange value, although it is essential to it. So what is the common property held by commodities? If it's not the utility, it can't be color, it can't be weight, it can't be size, because all commodities are different. The only thing that commodities have in common is that they are products of human labor. Nothing else. As Adam Smith again explained, the real price of everything, what everything really costs to a man to acquire it, is the toil and the trouble of acquiring it. Labor was the first price. The original purchase money that was paid for all things. Then he goes on to explain, it is natural that what is usually the produce of two days or two hours labor should be worth double of what is usually the produce of one day's or one hour's labor. So therefore, according to these um, classical economists, the amount um, of labor contained in a commodity determines their value. And Adam Smith explained that uh, the measurement of this is uh, the time it takes to produce something. Therefore, the, for these economists, the, classi the classical economists, value was not a subjective thing, something you thought of, but precisely as an objective reality about the, the amount of labor time embodied in the production of that commodity. Just as an aside, just I thought I'd clarify one point. I saw a, a trade union banner the other day on, on, uh, on the internet, which said, labor is the source of all wealth. But it's not scientifically correct. Sounds good, but it's not scientifically correct. Because nature also provides the raw materials which labor works on in order to develop use values, to develop products. In fact, it was the um, economist, William Petty, 
an English economist from the 17th century, who said that labor is the father of wealth, but the earth is the mother of wealth. But if we return to the, uh, the theme that we were discussing a little bit earlier, I mean, workers have got different skills and they produce different things. As I said, the baker produces bread, the shoemaker produces shoes, and so on and so forth. What these items are, are products of concrete labor. They're spe specific to the skill that created these commodities. But the labor of workers can be looked at in a different way, from a different angle. Because the labor of these particular workers make up the social labor force of society, whose collective efforts fulfill the needs of that society. In other words, this particular labor is part of a pool of generalized labor, universal generalized labor. And this is a particularly important concept to understand because it is the only way in which exchange can actually take place. You know, each commodity needs to be exchanged and compared with another commodity so it can be exchanged. And it can only be done, that can only be done if they are the same. So if, if everything is reduced to generalized labor, then there's no problem about exchange because it's only certain amounts of generalized labor. So in exchange, the concrete character of, of commodities is set aside. I suppose you could say like, you go in a supermarket and you want to buy certain things. You want to buy an apple, an orange, a pear, and pineapple. And each of these things have their own particular tastes and properties. But we can generalize it. We can say it's so much fruit. In the same way that uh, we look at in exchange, concrete labor is transformed into generalized homogenous labor. Of course, there has been objections from bourgeois uh, Economists, oh, what about uh, labor theory value? What about lazy workers? Which obviously, if you think about it, if there's a, a shoemaker and uh, he starts to make shoes, but he, he has cigarette break and a coffee break and every two minutes, obviously that, that shoemaker doesn't make as many shoes as the guy next door who's working all the time, working, making shoes. And it would be a silly idea to think that the lazy sh worker has got uh, shoes twice or three times as valuable as the person next door who is produced at the normal speed, if you like, and productivity. But you don't have to shape my word for it. If you tried to sell those shoes on the market and was asking, instead of £10, was asking £30 for them, you wouldn't sell them. It would be wasted labour. So the labour that makes up 
The value in commodities is not made up of the particular labor or the individual labor, but is made up from socially necessary labor. And that simply means that uh, labor which uh, operates under the average conditions, the average productivity of labor and so on at that particular time. Of course, there are workers with different degrees of skills. There are skilled workers, semi-skilled workers, and unskilled workers. But in exchange, this is all reduced, if you like, to uns generalized unskilled labor. Skilled labor simply becomes multiples of unskilled labor then, that way. Now, this is not written down anywhere. But it's decided on the basis of the market itself, the demands of the market. Clear on, on this, in this market, the, um, the total buying power of society is supposed to buy all the commodities that are produced. The problem of capitalism that it's not planned. And therefore, very often, there are commodities which are unsold on the market. In other words, it's overproduction that has taken place. And what it means is these excess commodities weren't socially necessary under those conditions of the market. And this is just then wasted labor. If it's not sold, it's wasted. It was never wanted. It's not needed. And this is how the law of value operates. It sifts out on the market. Which commodities have got the necessary labor time involved in their production? It sifts out what is needed and what is not needed. I mean, how different this would be on a, in a planned economy, a socialist economy. Because we would uh, ascertain the needs of society, there would be no overproduction. And this would be done in advance. We'd work out what was needed, and we would produce what is needed. It's as simple as that. Well, under capitalism, the law of value only operates after production has taken place and spewed onto the market. And you only find out afterwards whether those commodities are socially useful or not. I think this also brings into the fact that this concept of value is an historical category. It is linked to commodity production. But commodity production didn't always exist. So prior to this, there was no uh, theory of value. There was no value. There was no exchange. And likewise, under socialism, this law of uh, uh, this value will cease to operate. Because you're not producing for the market, you're not producing commodities for the market, you're producing the needs of society, which is totally different. And of course, there's going to be a massive development of the productive forces under socialism, and Prices will, will lose their significance because you're producing so much 
commodities for people's needs. As you know, you reach the highest stage of socialism, of communism, there won't be any money. Money will just have withered away. <laughs> there won't be any working class, there won't be any classes. Presumably, uh, you go down to the supermarket, if supermarkets exist under communism, I'm not sure. And there, will, there won't be any prices, you just take what you need in order for what you, what you want for that particular week or whatever. I mean, on the broad scale of things, uh, capitalism is there to, uh, through, through, the, through the price mechanism, is attempting to allocate the resources of society. But of course, this is based on profitability. In other words, what is uh, demanded, what there's a demand for, what there's a scarcity for, then capital will flow into that sector because it will be more profitable. Now, what is socially necessary, which I mentioned earlier, is not fixed, by the way. It changes, changes continually with the development of the productivity of labor. Uh, take the example of, uh, of computers, for instance, which is quite a good example. In the 1970s, you had IBM computers, which are extremely big and cost thousands, cost a lot of money. And the reason why they cost a lot of money is that they contained a lot of labor time in their production. Of course, today you can get a computer for what? $300, 300 pounds. The value has come right down because the amount of social and labor involved in them has got less and less and less. Of course, the, the capitalists are looking for uh, profitability, and they gain this through uh, increasing the productivity of labor of their workforce. They're constantly trying to reduce the costs, if you like, wage costs, in order to increase their profitability. Look at the example of the steel industry in Britain, for instance or what's left of it. In, uh, in the early 1970s, there were 325,000 steel workers in Britain. And since that time, there's been the, the whole of the steel industry has been restructurized, they said, restructured. And although the, the total production has gone down by half, they only produced half of what they did in 1970, the workforce has actually gone down from 325,000 to 35,000, producing half of what the previous figure produced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I 
And this uh, works out uh, roughly at about 500% increase in the exploitation of the steel workers over those years. Of course, this didn't solve the problem. They still closed the steel industries because there's a world glut. It shows the anarchy of capitalism. There was another point we should uh, uh, perhaps grasp as well. I mean, Adam Smith used the term uh, that value was the natural price of a commodity. But they said there was also there was a market price. There was the value price, which was the natural price, and there was a market price, the thing you paid for in the shops. But the market price would fluctuate uh, because of the law of supply and demand. But it would fluctuate around an axis, which was the value of the commodity. And that's why Marx wasn't interested in uh, market prices. He wanted to get the root of the root of the question, which is the value of a commodity around which the prices oscillate. And whatever the uh, value, if you like, or whatever the supply and demand rather of the commodity, there will always, always be some commodities far more expensive than others, more valued, more, more value than, than others. For instance, the price of um, a car will always be more than the price of a television set, for instance, because the car represents a higher amount of socially necessary labor time employed in its production compared to a television, for instance. But certainly values is, a, is the key to understanding, is the bedrock, if you like, to understand these economic concepts. Because it's the increase in the productivity of labor which results in the fall of prices in reality. The fall in the price of computers was nothing to do with supply and demand and everything to do with the amount of social labor gone into it, which is less and less and less. Of course, you can have uh, monopoly prices. Monopolies do exist, and uh, they can keep prices artificially high. And as a result, they can uh, create, or they, they can have monopoly profits, which is higher than the average rate of profit across the economy. But the monopoly uh, capitalists can only get this advantage by decreasing the average of the rest. In other words, the total values of society remain the same. They've just been redivided, that's all. Now, the, the labor theory of value allowed Marx to revolutionize economics. And above all, it laid the basis to understand this concept of surplus value and where it comes from. Money, after all, is invested by the capitalists, and at the end of the day, they get more money in return. But how is this uh, magic, inverted commas, performed? How can this miracle be performed? 
Clearly, surplus value doesn't arise from selling things or buying things cheap and selling them dear. Because if everybody did this, no one will gain out of it. There'll be losers and people who win, but at the same time, the same value would exist in society. For instance, if I had, I had a bicycle which is valued at £15, and I exchanged it for a table worth £5, the values would change, I'll be left with less, and the person who bought, who, who, who bought my bike would be have more. But the total value of £15 would remain the same. The bourgeois economists of the time of, of uh, Ricardo and uh, Smith explained that commodities exchange at their value. That's the point. And the, and the value of the commodity is determined by the amount of socially necessary labour time employed in making it. So if, if commodities are, are changed on an equal basis, how does inequality come about? And it was Marx who discovered this idea, this brilliant idea of surplus value. But to do it, he had to understand a particular problem, a way of looking at things. Above all, what did the worker sell to the capitalist? After all, the worker has no means of production. The only thing a worker has is the ability they have to work, and that's what they sell. But the classical economists thought that the worker sold his labor to the boss, which is not true. What he sells to the boss is his capacity to work. In other words, his labor power, as Marx explained. And the capitalist pays for this uh, labor power at the value of labor power and takes it to his factory in order to make it work for him. And the surplus value is the difference between what the worker receives in wages and what he produces in values in the factory. The worker gets the going rate for wages. He gets the full value of labor power, just like other commodities are sold at their value, so is labor power. But what is the value of labor power? It is the cost of producing the commodities that will keep the worker alive for the next day's work. And what we mean by that is the enough money to be able to get the necessities of life, uh, to pay the rent, and to bring up a family, the next generation of workers, for the capitalists of the future. So the worker is not robbed because he gets paid the full value of his labor power. He is not robbed and he's not cheated. Labor power is paid in full. What he doesn't get is the full fruits of his labor. 
course, in, in, in real life, workers are swindled, that's for sure. You know, they're, faced, they're forced to work uh, unpaid overtime. They don't get their wages on time. The whole number of tricks that the employers uh, pull in order to shortchange the worker. But that's not the main point as far as we're concerned. The main thing is that he does receive, the worker receives the full value for his labour power. Of course, like uh, other commodities, the, the value of labour power can be pushed down below its value or it can be pushed above its value, depending on the class struggle. I mean, there was an example not so long ago, probably still exists, of women textile workers in Leicester in the north of England. And they were being paid £4 an hour, which is half the minimum wage in Britain. So that was clearly below the value of their labour power. That's clear. And in many countries, particularly uh, what they call third world countries, many workers are receiving well below the value of their, of their labour power. We know that because they are in conditions of poverty and starvation. The, the classical, classical economists were very confused about this idea of labour and what the, the workers sold. They made the mistake to say that the worker sold his labour to the capitalist, which is not true. I mean, labour is the process of work. But labour power is the capacity for work, which is entirely different. And it was Karl Marx who discovered this difference, this secret of capitalist exploitation. And in particular, Marx understood that this labour power was completely different from other commodities ever produced. In fact, this, this commodity dominated all other commodities. Insofar as it could produce more value than its own value. And no other commodity could ever do that. Only labour power. Of course, the, the value produced of a worker can be measured over the working day. In an, in an eight-hour working day, the worker produces eight hours worth of value. But the worker does not receive in those eight hours the eight hours value he creates. He doesn't receive it, because if he did, there would be no profit. In practice, the worker produces values when he goes to work that will cover their wages in probably the space of half the working day. So in other words, an eight-hour working day, the worker would cover his wages or her wages within four hours. But after, 
within, within those four, four hours, they, they cover the wages. But after that, the worker then doesn't say, okay, I'm going home now. I've covered my wages. The capitalist says, hey, I've got a contract with you. And you have to work eight-hour shift, not four, and therefore continue to work. And it is in this extra four hours that surplus value is created and appropriated by the capitalist class. Therefore, we can divide the working day into two halves. The first half can be considered necessary labor time, which in this case of eight hours will be four hours labor time. And the remainder would be surplus labor time in which surplus value is created. Again, four hours. And in the same way, whether it's the worker, the industrial worker and the capitalism, or the slave in slave society, or the serf in feudalism, the working day is divided between these two things. Probably the clearest example is, is obviously feudalism, because the, the serf would work three days on the Lord's land and three days on his own land. On his own land, he would get the necessary, the necessities to bring himself and his family up. And the Lord, the three days on the Lord's land would be surplus labor. In the case of the slave, it does look as if uh, the slave produces only surplus labor time. After all, he's, he's owned by the slave owner. But this is an illusion because the slave also has to eat and drink and get the necessities for him to survive. And however small it is, that's the, the socially, that's the, the necessary time uh, that he needs to, to get the necessities for himself and the rest is surplus labor. And under capitalism, it's true also that the worker, uh, relationship with the worker and the, and the employer and surplus value is disguised. The illusion is created that the worker receives the full value of his labor, which is not the case. So under capitalism, you could say that the commodity is made up of a number of uh, elements. When the worker goes into the factory, he uses the machines and the raw materials to, to produce products, to produce commodities. But the, the value of the commodity is made up, firstly, of the raw material values and the depreciation that is transferred into the new commodities. Of course, raw materials which are completely used up in the production process are, transformed, are transferred completely into the new product. But when it comes to fixed capital like machinery, it's only over a period of time that, that small pieces of the machine, if you like, of the value of the machine is worn down and transferred into the new products.
Perhaps it can take 10 years for a machine to be worn out. So over that period, a certain percentage, 10% of year, of the value of the commodity of the machine would be transferred into the new products before the machine is, is scrapped. So you've got a value which is being transferred, but then you have a va new value created by the labor of the working class in the factory. And this, this new value would, co co would cover the workers' wages, a new value would be created, uh, which would be surplus value that would be taken by the capitalist. The raw materials and the machines and the buildings that is used by the capitalist, Marx called constant capital. It was constant insofar as the value was simply transferred in from the old stuff into the new product. But Marx called the capital which covered wages, he called it variable capital. And the reason why he called it variable is that uh, it's the part in which uh, new values are created. It varies, it increases value. In one sense, the, the machinery and the raw materials and the building, that's dead labor. That's made by workers in the past, just come forward in, into, the, into these areas. It's dead labor, old labor. Yes, it was, it was manufactured by previous workers, put that way. And Marx called variable capital living capital as opposed to dead uh, capital. And, and dead uh, capital or dead labor, as it should be called, is, um, is static, if you like. Yeah, machines and raw materials can lie idle for as long as you want. They won't add any new value. In fact, they will deteriorate. But as soon as you apply living labor to this dead labor, to the machines, then it comes alive and it produces new values and surplus value. I haven't got a, a board behind me, so I want to give us a, a simple, the simplest example I can give to, to illustrate the process. If we assume that the capitalist has a total value, of 100 pounds. I mean, it could be 100 euros, 100 dollars, it doesn't matter, just uh, we'll call it 100 pounds. Where constant capital, the investment in constant ca capital is made up of 90 pounds, whereas the investment in wages is 10 pounds. Now let's say after a working day, the worker produces an extra 20 pounds of new value. 10 pounds of that 20 pounds would cover his wages, and the other 10 pounds would be surplus value. Now, this would allow us to calculate, uh, well, first of all, the, the rate of profit of a, of a company. And the rate of profit can be calculated by uh, the surplus 
over the total capital employed. So if the surplus is ten pounds and the and the total capital is one hundred pounds, then you can see that the rate of profit is ten percent. Uh, but we can also calculate um, the rate of exploitation or the rate of surplus value, as Marx explained. How is the worker exploited? What is the degree of exploitation? And this, and this is a different formula. This is the surplus created by the working class or the worker over the wages, the variable capital that the worker gets. So the surplus of 10 over the wages of 10 will give you a rate of exploitation or a rate of surplus value of 100%. It must be stressed to think that um, surplus value can only be created in production and not in circulation. In fact, uh, profit is uh, nothing more than the unpaid labor of the working class. Although I did see, uh, I think, a meme, is it? I think he called it a meme. <laughs> Yesterday, said, which said that uh, uh, profit is the unpaid wages of the working class. Well, I'm afraid that's, that's false. You know, uh, the working class receives wages which are negotiated, which is the, are the basis of, receives the full value of his wages, as we said before. He receives the value of his labor power, that's all. And he's not, he's not robbed, it's an, it's, it's, an, it's an equal exchange. So the correct formula is that profit is the unpaid labor of the working class, because he's not paid the full fruits of his labor. He's paid wages, but not the full fruits of his labor, which is different. And as far as uh, the class struggle is concerned, really it can be defined as the struggle over the surplus value produced by the working class. And if the, worker, if the worker gets more wages in striking against the boss, the boss will simply get less profits, as simple as that. And vice versa, if the boss gets more profits, the workers will get less wages. Of course, this, this poses a, a contradiction for capitalism because the worker is uh, the producer, but he's also a consumer. And if the worker doesn't receive the full value of his labor, which he doesn't, he's not able to buy back the commodities that they produce. But the capitalist system obviously overcomes this problem, otherwise it would collapse on day one. And clearly the, the capitalist economy is divided between means of production producing consumer goods and means of production producing capital goods. But of course, uh, the workers don't go around buying iron ore, for instance, or coal or, uh, you know, other such uh, stuff. 
So what happens is the capitalists take the surplus value extracted from the labor of the working class and invests it in more means of production. This leads obviously to greater and greater amounts of constant capital in relation to variable capital. In other words, more machinery, more factories, more productive forces. But this allows the, a, a huge increase in the productivity of labor. I mean, 100 years ago, you probably have 100 uh, laborers with a spade to dig a hole which is a mile long, and it would take them two weeks. But today you get one worker who has a, a mechanical uh, excavator, digger, and he will, he will dig that trench a mile long in what? Two days? One worker using that machinery. But the problem is that uh, 100 years ago, even at today's prices, a shovel cost 10 pounds. So 100 shovels, 1,000 pounds. Whereas a worker, one worker, who's got a, a mechanical digger, a mechanical digger will cost 100,000 pounds. But that one worker, will, at its elbow, will have an enormous amount of constant capital increasing the productivity of that worker. The problem is that uh, surplus value only comes from the labor of the working class. It doesn't come from constant capital. So you find that over time, with the buildup of constant capital, there's a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. But the capitalists get around this, at least temporarily, by further intensifying the exploitation of the working class. It extends the working day, although unfortunately there are limits to that. There's only 24 hours in a day. It'll speed up the machines. It will intensify labor. And in that way, the tendency will be pushed back. But capitalism is an accumulation of, uh, of uh, industry, of technique, of the productive forces. But with this develop, become, development comes concentration and centralization of capital. And from competition, you've now got monopoly capitalism. And of course, the uh, problem with capitalism is that it produces without any knowledge of how much it can sell and therefore goes into overproduction. But it's not overproduction as far as society is concerned. Society needs a lot of things done. But it's overproduction for capitalist purpose of profit making. And now we've seen over the last 10 years, deeper and deeper crises of the capitalist system. It's clear now that capitalism is reaching a complete impasse. It cannot develop the productive forces as it did in the past. And there's a huge block now. The nation state and private ownership are a colossal barrier to the development of society. 
And as Marx explained, when a society is incapable of developing the productive forces, then revolution's on the order of the day. I mean, under capitalism, society is dominated by money and the tyranny of commodities. Most people do not understand this contradiction they face. This tyranny can only be ended where we have a planned economy brought in on a world scale. Where we have the rational planning of resources internationally to fulfill the needs of society. But that can only come about by the overthrow of capitalism by the working class. And in doing so, in the words of Engels, mankind will leap from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom, and from the realm of freedom to the realm of superabundance and the end of poverty and squalor of the masses of this world. Right, thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Rob. I think we all agree that was an amazing, fascinating and inspiring introduction to this topic. And the bourgeois say that economics is dusty and dull. They can't be imagining a dynamic discussion on Marxist economics like we just watched. I'll now move to the discussion. Uh, the first speaker, who will be our only speaker before a short 10-minute break, will be Frederick Albin Svensson from Sweden. So if he's ready, go ahead. Thank you, and thanks for the great lead-off. Uh, the revolutionary greetings from Stockholm, Sweden. All civilization so far has been based upon exploitation. Upon one class in society extracting the surplus labor of another. And I think one thing is clear to most people. A slave master would only keep a slave if he got more out of it than he gave the slave to eat. The slave must both reproduce the equivalent of what he, and she, he or she consumes and produce a surplus for the slave owner. This is another way to say that the slave master only keeps a slave if he can exploit him or her. And I also think no one would question that a feudal lord would only keep a serf if the serf could produce more than he or she consumed. That is, if the serf could produce a surplus and be, be exploited. Now, as you know, under capitalism, the liberals indignantly deny that there is exploitation. But I mean, the most self-evident fact of the system is exactly this. A capitalist only hires somebody if that person can produce more than he or she costs. Otherwise, the capitalist make no, makes no profit. And Rob explained the details of this very well in the lead-up. The profit comes from the surplus labor of the workers, which under capitalism means the surplus value. And uh, you might remember that last summer, the Amazon boss, Jeff Bezos, he decided to fly into space. And he did something unusual for a capitalist. He actually admitted where all his riches came from. He said this, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. And this, it created a lot of anger, actually. 
because yes, it is true, like you said, they did pay, but it wasn't voluntary. It wasn't as if they bought him a beer on a pub or something. But but it was through their sweat and tears. These workers had no choice but to allow this gangster to exploit them. And Marx, he wasn't the first one, actually, to note where the profits of the capitalists came from. But he was the first to manage to explain it scientifically. Five minutes gone. And, and what the Marxist economics really describes, it's not the economy in a narrow sense. What it describes is the living organism of capitalist society. This is like the historical materialism for the world that we live in, with all its contradictions and all its struggles. I think you get a lot better understanding of this world of 2022 by reading Marxist capital than you do by reading the news. Uh, Lenin said that politics is concentrated economics, which I think is very true. In the post-war period in the imperialist countries, you had a massive growth of the productive forces, and this was sufficient to increase the surplus of the capitalists and the standard of living of the workers. And for a whole period in the imperialist countries, this blunted the class struggle. Among many workers, it created illusions and reformism and in capitalism. Now the opposite is the case, because somebody has to pay for the crisis of the system. You know, the reformists, they like to find compromises where everyone is the winner. But now this is materially impossible. The reason is very simple. It's because the productive forces are not growing. And this means that the fight over the value created by the working class becomes more intense. And like we discussed yesterday, everywhere, you have a deep political crisis opening up. So you get intensified struggle between the classes, sharp and bitter class struggle back on the agenda. But you also get an intensified struggle within the classes, specifically within the ruling class. And within the ruling class, you start getting these massive divisions opening up when they try to maintain their rule. And they try to maximize their share of the surplus value. I think these two things are very much connected. And you see these divisions that are part of the crisis of the economy, they're part of the crisis of the, of the capitalism. You see them express themselves very clearly now on all fronts. You see the divisions between different imperialist blocs, which are reaching a qualitatively new level with the, with the current war in Ukraine. You get bigger divisions within these imperialist blocs as well, such as the divisions within NATO and within the EU. You get, even get massive divisions within the countries themselves, where you see different parts of the state go to war with, different, uh, with, with each other. So you have class struggle, divisions, wars, chaos, and this expresses, and it's part of the economic development, it is part of the crisis of capitalism. And with massive shocks, this is reshaping the minds of millions. It's putting revolution firmly back on the order of the day in every country on earth. And it's paving the way for the first civilization without any exploitation. It's paving the way for socialism. Thank you. Thank you, Frederick. That was an excellent contribution and well within the time. In a moment, we're going to take a 10 minute break so you can go and grab a cup of coffee or if you're at a watch party, buy one, raise some money for the fighting fund. Just before I go, one of the best things about the International Marxist University is seeing the level of global participation, seeing all the photographs of the comrades in watch parties, uh, taking part in the school all over the world. So this is a reminder to please bombard social media with all of the 
photographs and videos that you can with the hashtag IMU22. I think we got it trending two years ago. So let's see if we can accomplish that again. All right, we will now take a break for 10 minutes until half past seven British time. Welcome back. The next speaker will be Adam Booth from Britain, the other author of Understanding Capital, who will be followed by the other Albin Svensson, Nicholas from the International Secretariat. All right, Adam. Oh, sorry. Thanks very sorry. much, Joe, and thank you to Rob for an excellent introduction on Marx's labour theory of value. As Rob explained in his introduction, Marx took the best ideas of the classical bourgeois economists who came before him. People like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, who he considered the high point of uh, the classical school. I just want to touch on how economics or bourgeois economics developed after Ricardo. As I said, Ricardo was really the pinnacle of bourgeois economics. He and Smith had tried to understand capitalism scientifically. They saw it as a system that could be understood and a system with its own laws and dynamics that could be understood as a science. But the problem is they weren't thorough materialists and dialecticians. Their ideas and methods contain serious flaws. Their ideas were inconsistent, incomplete and contradictory, particularly when it came to the labor theory of value. We see that the whole method was imbued with an idealistic approach, a philosophically idealistic approach. They saw themselves as part of a field called political economy, but their political economy was not rooted in historical materialism, in the Marxist view of history. They didn't have a materialist view of history, but rather they idealistically saw themselves as discovering eternal truths and timeless laws. They believed that they could uncover these laws through hypothetical thought experiments, like the famous Robinson Crusoe on an island. They tried to present these hypothetical experiments of two men on an island trading with each other. And for them, capitalism was just a scaled up version, lots of individuals all exchanging in such a way. Now, Marx took the positive aspect of Smith and Ricardo's ideas. But the people who came after Smith and Ricardo seized on their negative uh, aspects of their ideas, the worst aspect of their method and ideas. The bourgeois who came after Smith and Ricardo took their idealism and developed it in an extreme way. And Marx referred to these people as the vulgar economists because he said they were no longer trying to analyze capitalism scientifically. They weren't interested in explaining economic phenomena. Instead, Marx said they'd become mere apologists for capitalism. Five minutes to go. Oh, five minutes gone, sorry, ten minutes to go. And this began with people like Jean-Baptiste Say. And he had something called Say's Law, which said that supply always creates its own demand. 
And this was effectively a precursor to libertarianism. With people like Mises or Hayek and the Austrian school that they came from. And these open reactionaries asserted that the free market was always efficient, that the invisible hand of the market was all powerful, if only it was left unrestrained by the state and trade unions and so forth. And another vulgar economist that Marx criticized was a man called William Stanley Jevons. And along with people like Leon Walrus and Jürgen von Bambauak, he developed something called marginal utility theory. And this was an extremely subjective idealist view of the, of the theory of value. Instead of seeing value as something determined objectively by labor, it was simply determined subjectively by utility, they said, by usefulness. In other words, they confused the use value of a commodity with its exchange value. And this was also the foundation of the Austrian school and people like von Mises. But the thing is that the classical schools, Smith and Ricardo, they paved the way for this reactionary trend in economics. Because they were liberals themselves who were imbued with a very individualistic, idealistic method themselves. As I said, for them, the economy could be scaled down to just, uh, or, or boiled down to just exchanges between two people on an island. And their labor theory of value was very individualistic. It was all based on Robinson Crusoe working away on his island, comparing different products. rather than, as Rob said, being based on socially necessary labor time and the idea of an objective market price. And now the vulgar economists also spawned another bourgeois school of economics in Cambridge, England. A professor called Alfred Marshall took the ideas of marginal utility theory uh, along with those of Adam Smith and people like John Stuart Mill. And he tried to apply these at a macro level to the wider economy. In other words, he, he wasn't just trying to analyze prices and profits, but the whole economy. He developed the idea of an economic equilibrium, a balance within the economy between production and consumption, between supply and demand. And these were the ideas that then became Keynesianism, because Keynes was one of his disciples at Cambridge. Now, Keynes also tried to look at the wider economy and the imbalances between investment, consumption, and government spending. He believed that the economy was a system that could be managed. He called it demand-side management through state intervention. The government could stimulate the economy and, uh, and plug gaps in uh, effective demand through its investment. In other words, Keynes thought that capitalism was something that could be managed and patched up. 
And that was what he saw his role as being. His ideas were there to help capitalism dig itself out of its crises. He himself saw, in his own words, saw himself as an educated bourgeois who was there to provide pragmatic advice. And he was also an idealist in this sense, because he saw capitalism abstractly as a machine that could be controlled. He saw it as a set of equations that could be balanced and solved. Just like the Hayekians and other academics do today. Instead of understanding capitalism scientifically, he was just trying to provide a remedy to, 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 to address the worst symptoms of capitalism and its contradictions. And this is why he appeals to the reformists today. By contrast, we as Marxists see the economy as a living class struggle. And Marxist economics is a guide to action, a way of understanding capitalism and its laws and its dynamics and its contradictions. Not to try, not to try and patch up this bankrupt system, but to overthrow it. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Adam. That was excellent. The next speaker will be Nicholas from the IS. Right, Nicholas, whenever you're ready. Thank you, Chair. Uh, so the question is, why do we study uh, labor fear of value, and it's because it has practical consequences. The reformists and the bourgeois, they want to deny the existence of irreconcilable differences between capital and labor. As comrades uh, will say in a minute, uh, they want to hide the truth to the world and to the workers in particular. Now, why is this? The reformists, two reformists, the labor fear of value poses a difficulty. We have two interests that are diametrically opposed. This means that when reforms are enacted, whatever pretty fra phrases they might put on the situation, the class struggle remains. The capitalists will attempt to squeeze more surplus value out of the workers, and the workers will attempt to resist or attempt to claw back some of, of what has been given up before. One class's loss is the other class's gain. Therefore, although, uh, of course, negotiations play a role in the trade union struggle, also for Marxists, the, these uh, negotiations aren't about two parties with common interests, but they are between two warring parties, two parties at war with each other, who agree a temporary truce. Under capitalism, there can be no lasting class peace. There can be no peaceful coexistence, no social partnership, except at the expense of the working class. And this is what the reformists try to hide. Now, we're now being faced with a wave of inflation. The bourgeois press are telling us that workers shouldn't ask for a wage increase because, of course, if they ask for a wage increase, it'll be bad for everyone. Um, uh, but I'll tell you who it's really going to be bad for. Um, if the workers agree not to pursue a wage increase, it would be very bad for the workers and very good for the capitalists. If the capitalists can sell their product for 10% more money, but don't, ha don't have to pay the workers another 10% in wages, 
guess who is going to pocket uh, the difference. Now, what most workers will see through this, precisely in a period like this, these kind of questions become a lot more concrete. Whatever rainbow flags the companies might display in their offices, Five minutes whatever, whatever phrases they might uh, talk about in terms of work-life balance and so on, about caring for their employees, here it is in black and white. Will the company match the inflation with, by increasing the wages? The question is posed, who will pay for the inflation? Is it going to be the workers or the capitalists? I'll take another example from the question of environmentalism. Some years ago, uh, the there was a policy in Sweden, a government policy advocated by the Green Party, and it was um, implemented by the Green Party and the Social Democrats I think with the left part as well on board. I've seen variants of this in many other countries. They call it the green tax exchange, which sounds very uh, innocent, doesn't it? Uh, what the policy was, was to cut employers' contributions to social security, that, that is the taxation on the employer, and instead increase the tax on energy and fuel. So the, the budget, there will be no difference to the budget government budget and the environmental benefit from these uh, higher costs of fuel. So everyone would be happy. You know, it's a great, great solution to solve the environmental problems. Except, of course, uh, a tax on energy is paid for work, uh, paid by workers through their energy bills. And the social security contributions or tax on work, as they called it, these taxes were paid by the employer. So here we have a very good example of a green policy or so-called green policy which directly moved surplus value from the working class to the capitalists, a policy to make the workers pay for the climate crisis, and at the same time enrich, enrich the capitalists even further. And of course, these incentives don't work anyway for the, to solve the, green, uh, the climate problem. But this really reveals the petty bourgeois nature of the Green parties. Um, to make things worse, uh, the origins of these employer social security contributions come from collective bargaining. Throughout the post-war boom, when industry was booming, the workers agreed to abstain from wage increases, or the trade union bureaucrats on behalf of the workers agreed to this. And through the, through the social partnership model... Ten minutes gone, five minutes to go. They abstained from wage increases so that employers would help fund uh, sick pay, healthcare, and so on. So, uh, but now the workers face cuts in sick pay and the burden of paying for this sick, sick pay has moved from the bosses to the workers. So here's a truly fine policy for anyone who wants to turn the workers against the uh, green movement or against the environmental movement. And obviously we reject any such attempts to, uh, uh, to solve the climate crisis. The labor fear of value is therefore our help in understanding and also exposing the various means by which the capitalists attempt to increase their share of the pie. It remains a fundamental cornerstone in how our understanding of capitalism and why we need to overthrow it. Thank you very much, Nicholas. That was another excellent contribution. And I'm sure that we're about to hear another. The next speaker will be James Kilby from Britain who will be followed by Sandro from Austria, who will be our final speaker before I hand it back over to Rob. All right, James, whenever you're ready. Thank you, Chair. As Rob and others explained, the ruling class abandoned any idea of a labor theory of value after Marx, and bourgeois economics retreated into subjectivism. <clears throat> they attempt to explain value from the standpoint of individuals and their preferences, instead of as an objective law that emerges from millions of interactions. 
I think that most economics courses at schools or universities don't even mention Marx. They just pretend he never existed. But when they do try to demolish Marx, they tend to focus on things like the price of luxury goods, like diamonds or works of art or fine wines, to pick holes in the labor theory of value. The most famous attack is what they call the diamond water paradox, which is to say that although water is more useful to humans than diamonds for survival, diamonds sell for much higher prices than water. Actually, this isn't really an attack on Marx's labor theory of value, but more of an attempt to justify marginal utility theory. The argument goes that it's not labor time that determines prices, as what about things like fine wines? Presumably, they take a similar amount of time to produce than less tasty wines. So therefore, it must be the fact that people subjectively value some wines more than others, and that this subjective preference therefore determines the price. Okay, so this is then supposed to explain why diamonds fetch such high prices, because some people subjectively value them very highly. It is not explained why this is, but never mind. The paradox is then how can something like diamonds be more highly valued than water? which is essential for survival. The answer, according to this theory, is that it is not the total utility of water that are compared to the total utility of diamonds, but only the marginal utility, i.e. the usefulness of obtaining one more unit of a commodity as we consume more and more of them, so that where water is in high supply and diamonds are in short supply, supposedly the usefulness to someone of obtaining one more diamond is meant to be far greater than the usefulness of obtaining an additional glass of water, hence their higher prices. But for someone dying of thirst in the desert, they would be prepared to pay more for this water than for diamonds. Five minutes gone. Therefore price, which they conflate with value, is simply reduced to the preferences of individuals. Those that assert that this demolishes Marx's labor theory of value either don't know what they're talking about or are willfully deceitful as even Adam Smith differentiated between the use value of a commodity and its exchange value. And he's precisely the example of water and diamonds to prove this point, that it is the enormous amount of time spent in finding diamonds that gives them a high value. Marx points out in Capital that if more productive diamond mines are discovered, the value of diamonds decreases as the socially necessary labor time required to find them has decreased and that there is a crucial difference between value and price, which is strikingly evident in the case of unique items, such as works of art or commodities that are almost unique, like a fine wine from a certain vineyard. Marx explained how in these cases, which are akin to having a monopoly, the price of these commodities can diverge significantly from their value, as they cannot easily be reproduced en masse. When talking about the law of value, however, Marx is referring to generalized commodity production, items that can be easily reproduced in practically limitless quantities. So while someone paid $11.8 million for a painting of a can of soup by Andy Warhol, something that is unique, no one can charge that amount for an actual can of soup, no matter how much someone may like its taste. It's telling that the bourgeois economists base their theories on highly abstract scenarios, such as two people on an island trading between one another or someone dying of thirst in the desert. They do this to obscure the real relations of capitalism, where production is carried out on a mass scale through large-scale industry for sale on the world market, and society is divided into classes with irreconcilable interests. Ten minutes gone, five to go. 
Their theories are nothing more than an attempt to justify this system, the rule of the bankers and billionaires. Marxism instead starts from an analysis of this real world in all of its complexity, not to try and prettify and justify it, but to understand it in order to change it. Thank you, comrades. And thank you, James. I wonder whether you were inspired by Alan's talk on art when you brought in that analogy about the soup. I'm now going to introduce our final speaker before I bring Rob back in. Sandro from Austria. All right, whenever you're ready. Thank you. Um, so Marx said that those who demand proof for the labor theory of value simply don't understand what it's about. This is because the labor theory of value expresses something that literally every child understands. If a group of people live together in an apartment and one person contributes to the housework for 10 minutes every week and the others maybe an hour or more every day, then everybody understands that, the, that this person is taking advantage of the others. This person profits from their labor. In an annotation to the third volume of Capital, Friedrich Engels explains how the exchange of products according to the necessary labor time has developed historically. I quote, The peasant of the Middle Ages was fairly well aware of the labor time required to produce the objects he exchanged. The blacksmith and the village cartwright worked under his eyes. The articles that they exchanged were each one's own products. What had they expended in making these products? Labor and labor alone, to replace tools, to produce raw material, and to process it. They spent nothing but their own labor power. How, then, could they exchange these products of theirs otherwise than the ratio of labor expended on them? Or is it believed that the peasant and the artisan were so stupid as to give up the product of 10 hours' labor of one person for that of a single hour's labor of another? The peasant and the artisan would not let themselves be ripped off. This is the social content of the law of value. So the labor theory of value is not some kind of academic hypothesis. It describes how work is distributed in society. It is about relationships between people, not between things, as Rob said. When equivalents are exchanged, equal amounts of labor are exchanged. When unequal exchange occurs, one side benefits from the work of the other. When I take away a great deal of value from someone, I've taken away an equal amount of labor from them. Suppose someone works for years to afford a car. Let us disregard the exploitation of wage labor for a moment. If I steal that car from him, then he has spent years working not for, not for himself, but for me. The more expensive the car, the more he has worked for me. Value and labor time are identical. We know that under capitalism, a minority benefits Five minutes from the gone, labor. Right. Five minutes the, gone. A minority benefits from the labor of the majority. And that this minority, the bourgeoisie, bases its rule on lies and deceit. Their claim that the labor theory of value is obsolete is precisely such a lie. They are saying that value and labor have nothing to do with each other. The trading the product of 10 hours' work for the product of one hour's work is not stupid, but perfectly normal and agreeable. This is the purpose of the marginal utility theory, and it has nothing to do with science. What the bourgeoisie payers as wages requires much, much less labor to produce than we do for them. Rob has explained how the working day is always split into two parts, one of which is unpaid. I work in a factory myself. 
A few weeks after I started working there, some of my co-workers mentioned that they had calculated that after half an hour of work, our wages are already produced. But my co-workers didn't read this in Capital or any other book. They just saw the extremely expensive products in their hands and understood that they were being taken advantage of. This shows how the social content of the labor theory of value is immediately clear to everyone, to everyone except the bourgeoisie who treats it as a purely academic hypothesis which it tries to counter with its absurd marginal utility theory. So they end up denying that wealth comes from human labor, that labor is why we have food, houses, cars, planes, phones, clothes, and so on. They end up claiming that the creator of this wealth is not the working class, but themselves, the class of entrepreneurs. <laughs> this is not a scientific thesis. This claim has no merits that could be appraised objectively. This is a mystification an idealistic lie that is about as realistic as astrology. The difference between astrology or the marginal utility theory on one hand and physics or the labor theory of value on the other hand is precisely the difference between science and superstition or between dialectics and empiricism. Ten minutes gone, five to go. But empiricism of crudest, most stupid and superstitious kind. They say there is no value, there are only prices, they move through supply and demand, and that's all there is to know about it. There are no values at all, there are only prices, and they change all the time. And like this, the bourgeoisie ends up incapable of explaining why popcorn will always be more expensive than corn, or why cake will always be more expensive than flour, or why a wage laborer will never earn as much as he produces. These questions are not relevant to the bourgeois economist. What's relevant is the celestial movement of prices and of supply and demand curves. They behave like astrologers, astrologers who just stare at lights moving at the sky without understanding them. But the dialectical method looks for essences behind appearances. Prices are affected by supply and demand, and this is why they deviate from values. But they still oscillate around the values. They are incomprehensible without the values just like the movement of the stars and planets is incomprehensible without gravity. In the history of philosophy, Alan explains how the ruling class tries to fight progress by denying that reality exists. In the 18th century, Bishop Berkeley denied that our perceptions are caused by real things. Two, uh, two minutes to go, comrade. Yes. Today we have postmodernism and identity politics, which say the same thing. And so does marginal utility theory when it denies that prices are expressions of value. It's all the same. They do this in every field. Quantum physics, gender studies, monetary theory, linguistics, politics, philosophy. Sum up, please. Yes. Uh, they say that there are no facts, only so-called narratives. The marginal utility theory is part of this general assault on the concept of reality. But the fact that the bourgeoisie has spent over a century trying to convince us that reality does not exist only proves that reality is on our side. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sandro. And not only is reality on our side, but also time. All the comrades kept well to time, so Rob is going to have plenty of opportunity to sum up to what was a very, very rich discussion. I think this will not only have educated us about Marxist economics and the labor theory of value, but armed us with ideas and analysis that will help us fight for a better world. Now, before I bring Rob in, since this is a session on economics, I'll take this opportunity to remind you all of our financial collection. 
which racked up a fantastic result last night. But it's not over yet. Finances are the news of war, comrades, and we are at war. A class war. A class war where we stand on the side of the exploited and the oppressed. So I'll make another appeal to those who might not have donated already or who want to donate again. But the link to follow is donate.marxist.com. And without further ado, if he's ready, I will hand things back over to Rob to sum up. All right, take it away, Rob. I think that the discussion was uh, an excellent one, given the complexity of the subject. Uh, I'd like to underline a few uh, points made by the comrades. Firstly, bourgeois economics is in crisis because capitalism is in crisis. They are incapable of understanding the contradictions of capitalism. In fact, bourgeois economics is a fraud, is bankrupt. They're just the witch doctors in, in reality in facing the, the real economic developments in society. And the reason why they attack Marx is because obviously the crisis is, is, is pushing people in the direction of Marxist economics and an understanding of what's going on. And this is what terrifies them, that Marxism becomes popular because of the impasse of the capitalist system itself. As Lednick said, you know, life teaches and the workers are being taught the crimes of capitalism firsthand. So in relation to the, the classical bourgeois economists, of course they had their limits. They were just, they were just if like infants in looking at the capitalist system at its earliest stages. But uh, at least they were honest. You had the, the physiocrats in France who analyzed, yes, maybe, maybe agriculture, but looking at how a surplus is created. And on, based on the work of these people, then you had Adam Smith and then Ricardo taking these ideas further, advancing them. And that's why Marx studied these, uh, these people. They were giants at the time in relation to understanding capitalism. Yes, they had their limits, that is true, no doubt about it. But they also discovered important truths, and particularly the labor theory of value. And Marxism is based upon the work of these pioneers and criticized by Marx and developed by Marx. And, and I, I've read uh, Adam Smith, I've read uh, David Ricardo's writings, and they are very interesting. And I'll tell you what, they're a million light years removed from the university rubbish that teaches economics today. That's a sure. And precisely because they had hit on this revolutionary idea of the labor theory of value, that the ruling class decided that those ideas were too subversive and they need to be put away, destroyed, hidden. In other words, for the sake of defending capitalism, they were prepared to turn their back on, on real scientific advance. And that is why Marx said that these people, that this new generation after Ricardo, were in effect prize fighters for capitalism and nothing more than that. They revised everything instead of a, an objective basis of economics. In other words, the labor theory of value, they went for utility. This, this pathetic idea of marginal utility, which is based simply upon the, uh, the usefulness of things, as we explained. And in reality, it's, it's, a, it's a fancy term for 
the law of supply and demand, in effect, which does not really explain anything. That's the point. It's the surface of events. It's the appearances. And the, and the bourgeoisie weren't interested in a scientific analysis of capitalism. So all those so-called economists who came afterwards are only interested in market relations and so on, the superficial aspect. And that's the case today. I mean, if you read uh, Keynes, for instance, well, I read uh, some of the Keynes not so long ago. What a waste of time. And of course, you have the monetarists then who have come forward of uh, Milton Keynes and so on. Think they, they have understood what uh, needs to be done to solve the problems. But as we say, you know, both schools are wrong and sometimes they can be right as well, but from the opposite point of view. But the point is that the task of economics today is to pull the wool over the eyes of the working class. I mean, what, what good are the, are the uh, you know, forecasts of the economists? In reality, they always get it wrong because they do not understand what they're dealing with. After all, you remember, well, perhaps you don't. <laughs> I live along a bit longer. They came out in the 1950s and 60s. Capitalism had changed. The working class doesn't exist. Exploitation doesn't exist. Everybody's got to become middle class. And obviously, because of the boom or the upswing at that time, then it looked a bit credible. But it was only short-sightedness. They didn't see what was happening underneath. And all that the problems have been accumulating and accumulating. As Marx explained, they can put off the evil day, but in doing so, they create further problems down the line. You should remember the, you know, the first critiques of Marx, of, of Say's law, is that Marx is wrong because capitalism wouldn't be going to crisis. It couldn't go into crisis because everything would balance out. But when crisis, as in 1929, banged them on the nose, they had to say, oh, there is a crisis. Yes, yes, there's a crisis. Oh, but it's a crisis of creative destruction. In other words, it's a positive crisis. And this is the line of the bourgeois economists at the present time. Although some, of course, have, have, have hit on the idea there's something going wrong here. There's something going wrong. But uh, they're incapable of understanding what is that going wrong thing. I mean, some even pay lip service to Marx. Well, he might have had something, said something there, he might have something right. But of course, this revolution business, well, <laughs> that's another matter. No, 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 not revolution. And of course, the, the whole task is to, to confuse, isn't it? It's to blur, you know, the class struggle, the class divide, the class division. But these contradictions are becoming more and more visible by the day. And therefore, therefore they, they cannot hide this crisis and impasse of capitalism. Although even then, the left reformers in particular say, Oh, what we want is a, is a better capitalism, is a nicer capitalism, is a good capitalism. But there's no such thing. What we have is capitalism in dire economic and social crisis. It's reached a complete and utter impasse. It's exhausted itself. And what we're having is like the knot is being retied, isn't it? Between today and the crisis of the interwar period, but on a higher level. I had to, to, to laugh the, the other day, a smile, I should say, the other day, when I read uh, Trotsky, I think it was 1938-39, when he predicted that in America, the dash capital would be more popular than ice cream. <laughs> well, that prediction obviously was being cut across 
because of the world economic upswing following the Second World War. But now the knot has been retied to the 1930s. And the working class are coming to realize that no amount of tinkering with capitalism is going to solve its problems. And that capitalist crisis means a, resent, a relentless attack on the living standards of the working class. Whatever party is in power. And therefore, the class struggle goes on and intensifies. And everything has been put to the test. And therefore, the, the apologists of capitalism inside and outside the labor movement have a tough task in trying to convince the working class that everything is fine under capitalism. And now with the reality of, of wage cuts and inflation, again, the bosses and their, and their apologists are saying, yes, wage rises cause inflation. In other words, the working class must accept a reduction in living standards. I did explain in my opening remarks that the fundamental contradictions of capitalism are preparing for a collapse. But capitalism will not collapse under its own volition. The capitalist will always find a way out. But that is always at the expense of the working class. And therefore, if the working class fails to take power, then the capitalist class will take its revenge on the working class. But what is required is the overthrow of capitalism, a conscious overthrow and the reorganization of society. I mean, all you have to do is open the newspapers to see the cataclysmic crisis unfolding on a world scale. And there's no solution to this crisis. But of course, it propels the capitalists to attack the working class. But it's this very crisis then that gives birth to the idea of a fundamental change in society. But the revolution doesn't occur by the workers looking off. Socialism looks good, Pooh. capitalism looks bad. The revolution occurs when the ruling class cannot rule in the old way, and the working class cannot live in the old way. And this is the, the basis of the contradiction that they face at the present time. Capitalism on a world scale has created a phenomenal productive potential, but it cannot be used by capitalism because it's not profitable to use it. And therefore, in periods even of boom, they can only use 80% of capacity. And in periods of slump, they can't use something like 70 or 60% of capacity. But that shows the revolt of the productive forces. They cannot use them. As Marx explained in the Communist Manifesto, there's too much food, there's too much things created for capitalism's needs. And therefore, there's, there's no real way out, except for more misery and more assaults on the living standards of the working class and the middle class itself. So whilst capitalism has brought into being the potential for solving humanity's problems, it cannot do so. It cannot be used. It's only when we, the working class takes in its hands the productive forces and plans the resources for the benefit of all. 
then these contradictions can be resolved. You know, private ownership and the nation states are the main barriers to the development of society. And as, as Alan mentioned a bit earlier, the potential for robotics and of technology and scientific advance to reduce the working week to practically nothing is possible. I mean, the great socialist uh, Paul Lafargue, he wrote the book, The Right to be Lazy, a book of, of how humans could enjoy themselves being lazy and leisure time. That's our instinct after all. I mean, who the hell wants to work? In <laughs> particular, eight, nine, 10, 12 hours a day. But that's what capitalism imposes on us, particularly in the third world and the disgusting conditions imposed on the working class there. So yes, socialism offers liberation from this misery of capitalism, economically, politically, socially and culturally, as we said. But a world plan of production in the hands of the working class in a very short period of time would transform the entire planet. I mean, deserts could flourish. We could transform the entire planet for the interests of the environment and the interests of working people as a whole. But in the hands of the capitalists, yes, it's barbarism and it's destitution and, well, ecological misery and destruction. So what a, what a great gift to humans, the human species if we owned and controlled the means of production. But now I would say, this is within our grasp. The conditions of capitalism is creating is revolution everywhere. It's not a question, is there going to be a revolution, isn't there? There will be. The main question is, is it going to be a successful revolution? And that means the building of a revolutionary leadership internationally that's prepared to go all the way, as the Bolsheviks did in 1917. That's the task that lies before the working class and lies before every one of us. So yes, it is a future of barbarism or misery or one of superabundance and pleasure for all. I say to hell with capitalism, to hell with class society, and victory of the working class on an international basis. Thank you. What an absolutely phenomenal, rousing note to conclude on. I can't think of a more appropriate note to end the second day of this fantastic Marxist university on than that. Because Rob's laid out what this is all about, why we're all here. We don't study these ideas because they're interesting and because we're academics trying to be clever. The reason we study economics, philosophy and history, the reason that the international Marxist tendency organised this event and the reason that you're all taking part is that we're trying to use these ideas to overthrow the rotten society we find before us and build a better one, to put an end to the animal struggle for survival and enter into a truly human world. So if you haven't already, I invite you to join us in this struggle. The International Marxist Tendencies doors are open to anyone who wants to fight for a better world. So if this event has uh, inspired you, then get in touch, join us. But of course, it's not over yet. We're only at the halfway mark. 
and we have a slate of fantastic speeches and discussions tomorrow as well, starting with three parallel sessions on the Spanish conquest of the Americas, uh, money and inflation, and the Marxist theory of knowledge. Well, comrades, I hope you've had a wonderful second day of the IMU. Share your favorite quotes, your favorite speeches, your favorite interventions all over social media, along with photographs. We love to see them. And good night from us and enjoy the rest of your evening or whatever time it is where you are.